in San Francisco at SBL, Society of Biblical Literature Meetings, uh, that's now three weeks ago, I presented two papers, one on, on the Sabbath and, uh, and war, where I basically said that, that uh, there is a no-war ideology in the Sabbath. I, I did argue that there is scriptural, a scriptural basis for a pacifist commitment with the Sabbath. Uh, certainly, if you see the Sabbath in a messianic context, there is no messianic project that will do war. You know, maybe one can do war for other reasons, but one cannot do war in a messianic context. So I uh, uh, tried to exegete the text uh, primarily in First Maccabees, and then relating it to the Book of Daniel and, and Matthew 24. Pray that your flight may not be on in the winter or on the Sabbath. Uh, and, uh, and it was quite a good learning experience for me to, to develop that perspective, and, and I have sent it to some of you. Maybe you've looked at it so you can critique it at your leisure. And uh, my other uh, paper was on, on the priority of theology over Christology in the Gospel of John. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, believe the works, even if you don't believe in me. That's, the pri that's to prioritize theology over Christology. That's not to say that Christology is unimportant. It's hugely important in the Gospel of John. But when Jesus is pushed, you know, and has his back against the wall, he will tell you what is most important. And what is most important is to know that the way he was and the works he did tells us what God is like. Believe the works, even if you don't believe in me. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Amazing, sort of prioritizing, just, you know, even from the mouth of Jesus in, in the Gospel of John. So, any, any thoughts you have since I saw you last? Uh, <coughs> sort of what's on your minds? Uh, I'm going to uh, try to share some things today on, on the Sabbath as a reluctant commandment which is a title, a chapter title in the book, in my book on the lost meaning of the seventh day. And why should one consider it, why should one qualify it? Because the Sabbath is a commandment, but here we are qualifying it to say, to say that uh, it is a commandment that is somewhat reluctant to be seen as that. And, and there are reasons for that. So uh, I would like to suggest that the, when we look at the Sabbath, we've done that already to some extent, that the aspect of gift, the aspect of gift needs to loom larger than the aspect of obligation. And the notion of divine commitment needs to loom larger than the notion of divine commandment. Those are, so our working hypothesis now is going to center on the notion of divine commitment and the Sabbath as divine commitment, something God is committed to do and to doing for, for humans, for, for the world, for, for, the, for the universe even. Uh, and that the commandment aspect must not be allowed to eclipse the commitment aspect. And I think that that would uh, sort of set up uh, conceptual, uh, what should I say, points of reference that that we could uh, that we could be intrigued by. 
Now, before we do, before we get into it, let me read this uh, statement from uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. I think, uh, uh, certainly, I think uh, you can say without qualification that the most influential book on the Sabbath written in the 20th century is the book by Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Jewish, Jewish uh, rabbi who wrote this book, The Sabbath, Its Meaning for Modern Man. It was published in the 50s. And... Uh, uh, it has, there has been a dialogue between Adventists and, and Jews uh, through Heschel. I think Heschel came to Loma Linda uh, uh, on some occasions, didn't he? I think Dr. Provencia uh, invited him here. I think he was here. And, uh, and there, is also, there is also an influence beyond the Adventist community uh, through Heschel's work because... Uh, uh, because many people, when they read his take on the Sabbath, they, they get uh, sort of wistful. You kind of wish you were part of that kind of that tradition. You kind of wish you knew what it means to love the Sabbath, to know the blessing of the Sabbath, and so on. So I'd say that, that his book has, has in some ways enticed people uh, who are not uh, Sabbatarians, and it has influenced Adventist thought also about the Sabbath. Here is what he says. Uh, and I just want to, to use this as a qualifier for what will follow. To the biblical mind, however, labor is the means toward an end. And the Sabbath as a day of rest, as a day of abstaining from toil, is not for the purpose of recovering one's lost strength and becoming fit for the forthcoming labor. The Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. So let's let's comment on that before I before I ruin it and say that there is a labor aspect to it as well. So uh, any any comment on that? Do you agree with him? Do you uh, feel uh, sort of is he, is that okay to to say that? So it's not. The Sabbath is not with reference to work or rest from work primarily. It's not sort of just, you know, to charge the batteries and so on. It is a day. Uh, what does he mean by that? The Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. Yes? It's mostly true, but there is still the labor aspect. Yeah. Mostly true. <laughs> okay. All right. Other, other thoughts on it? Yes, there. I think if, if he had said it's not primarily for the purpose of recovering one's lost strength, I'd feel better about it. But I think for me to go nonstop is not life-giving. I mean, I do need physical rest. It's such a blessing to be commanded to do it. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't, you know. Well, he probably doesn't mean to say that, you know, that there isn't that need for rest. He just doesn't want... He just doesn't want the Sabbath to be defined with respect to labor. He wants it to be defined on its own terms. And the terms is, is then, then that there is a legitimacy to, to the Sabbath that is not, uh, you know, that doesn't have, have human labor as, it may, uh, as its main, main reference point. Or uh, others of you might wish to, to comment here. Any, any? You had a thought? Well, yeah. Just a second, we'll have a microphone here. 
it's definitely deeper than toil and rest in toil because it's about relationship with God. So the Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. What does that all entail? I mean, it has to do with God. And well, I think that's exactly what, 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 has, what has intrigued people who read Heschel, that they hear him say something, you know, well, what is it I missed out on? You know, that I'm living a, just a utilitarian life, you know, whatever, you know, sort of seeking, you know, that it is defined on, my, on our terms with re- reference to our labor and so on. And then suddenly he says the Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. And what was it about life that, that configures the Sabbath into such, a, such an intriguing and maybe an enticing uh, uh, practice and an enticing uh, reality? The last sentence then is a rebuke for workaholism. And if I understand what he's saying, it is that the six days are for the sake of the Sabbath. He says that in the next sentence. I didn't take it. So you, you're, you, uh, either you remember that he says that, or that is you see it as, as a sort of whole cloth, because he does say that in the next sentence. That is exactly... You know, he says the Sabbath is not, the other days are subservient to the Sabbath, not the other way around. So. He says it's for the soul, not just for the body. Yeah, that too, he does say that. So he, he does, you know, say that there is, a, there is an inner life. There is a, the Sabbath is a promoter of the inner life and the richness of the inner life in ways that is not... You know, just cannot be accounted for just with reference to to work or even absence of absence of work. I think there's also a parallel, possibly, with the Adventist Health Study too. And the subset of that study that's looking at the, the spiritual side of life being so important for longevity, if you will, as well as the blue zones that we've read about, and now there's a new one. Uh, that follows up on that as uh, where are the happiest places on earth and thriving is the title of that book uh, by Dan Buettner it's interesting to read that as I read that book he makes the point that people who are the happiest are those who take time off every week for rest and are communing with each other and frequently eat with family and a lot of social outside thought there's the sabbath so, the title so, of the book is Thriving by Dan Buechner, but, but it really epitomizes the Sabbath. He doesn't say so, but it's the epitome of what we see as the Sabbath. So where are the happiest places on, on earth? Where are they? Well, is Loma Linda one of them? Loma Linda wasn't included in that. He missed the boat. <laughs> no. But that is, that's good. That is, that is interesting. So there history, is a, history, that, yeah. History, the happiest places happen to be uh, Denmark, uh, North East Mexico, where there's not a lot of drug things, and Singapore. Uh huh. Okay. And Denmark. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think that the first, uh, or one of the first phrases in the quote there, labor is the means toward an end, he's describing the relationship between labor and life. And because labor is so dominant in our lives, it's easy for us to make life about labor. And as Jesus said about, you know, man and the Sabbath, he could say, um, life is not made for labor. Labor is made for life. And um, so 
rest is not just to enable labor, but rest is is all about what life is all about, and labor is just supporting. Mm. Well, that is you're you're certainly right that 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 our lives are defined, you know, in the in the labor uh, dimension. So. Uh, there is a comment here. Let's see. Just a second, we'll have the microphone. It seems to me that we need to think of the Sabbath as also a way of communicating with God. This is life eternal, that you know God. So the Sabbath can be thought of as a day that we can try to learn to know God better. <clears throat> okay, so the Sabbath is a day where we can we can learn the God better, which again is to, to emphasize the relational aspect. Now, Maureen Dowd, who writes column, uh, who's a columnist in the New York Times, she wrote in her column this week, uh, she was referring to a Swiss, uh, I think a Swiss philosopher or some, something. I have, I, I have heard his name. I have no, not read anything by him. I think his name is Max, Max, Max Picard. He says that there is nothing that is more characteristic of modern life. Nothing has changed as much in modern life as the loss of silence. The loss of silence, that is modernity. You know, that captures the, 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 the you know, characteristics of modernity more than anything else, the loss of silence. And the Sabbath certainly would be would belong to that kind of uh, sort of attuning and it, it, it is attuned to silence in ways that, that, that should also make us maybe have a sense of loss uh, uh, that, uh, of which the Sabbath is a part. Well, we need to go on uh, because uh, <clears throat> now the Sabbath is a day for the sake of life and here is a text about life from Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 25 uh, maybe we can have one of you read it from the audience uh, uh, let's have a volunteer to read Exodus uh, uh, a picture of life for the Israelites in Egypt the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out out of the slavery their cry for help rose up to God God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God noted and took notice of them. So this is the life of the Israelites and what kind of life is it? You know, the Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. <laughs> and here, what do you see here in this text from, from Exodus? Cried out for Life isn't very good. What else can we say? What is it about life? that isn't so good here. That human life has been reduced to, to just mere instrumentality, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That you're a mere, a, a mere instrument, you are not a human being. There is a, and of course there is, you know, hard labor, there is, there is loss of control of your own, your own reality, your own time, the terms of your own existence have, have been taken away from you. So, so it's loss of, loss of control, loss of, of autonomy, you might also in some ways say. I guess the way I want to say that is they're slaves and they're not free. Yeah, they are slaves, you know, so they, they, are, they are just mere instruments to the Egyptians. And then, uh, uh, let's read this one. Then there is this t uh, conversation between God and, and Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Uh, let's have that one 
let's read that one too. Exodus 3, 7, and 8. Jeff. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here uh, we see God taking note of people who are enslaved. He, uh, he is quite aware, isn't he? We said in the that the Sabbath, message of the Sabbath in the beginning from the creation story is a message of divine engagement, not divine retreat, not God retreating from creation. And here we see God, God uh, sort of uh, uh, making good on, on, on that commitment. I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. And I have come down. So see here, I have observed, I have heard, uh, I know. And then, uh, you know, that, those are quite, quite evocative terms of God keeping tabs of what is happening in human reality. I have come down to deliver them. So let's see if I can do this now, uh, this thing here. Uh, let me see if it works. I'm not sure I will get the sound. Okay, I'm going to play for you, uh, or I'm going to try to play this piece from uh, The Prince of Egypt, this Walt Disney movie from 1998. Uh, and I'm going to play, uh, play the Hebrew version, just a little bit. Uh, the title of this uh, segment here, if I get it right, uh, is uh, Deliver Us. I don't know if you will get enough sound where you are. Is there a way to get more sound here, Brad? You hear that? Yes. That, oh, okay. Any comments? 
Most of you had seen it before, hadn't you? You haven't seen this movie? Well, I saw it in Norway many years ago. Uh, I think it was uh, released initially in uh, 1998. And, and I, you know, whatever you make of it, but I was really, really touched by that scene. The song there is Deliverance, Deliverance. And I thought they, that was not a bad representation. That's kind of how I have depicted slavery. You know, human beings re reduced to mere instruments. And you see, you know, when they pull at the ropes there, what is it that comes up when they pull at the ropes there and you see this enormous human figure? What is it? You know, that's, that's uh, you know, the Israelites living for the aggrandizement of their Egyptian rulers. It is life under the iron heel of man, if I may say it. You know, and I say it, I, I do, that is not sexist language here. I mean it as man. Life under the iron heel of man. You know, and then God intervenes. And the Sabbath is part of that intervention project. And it does get perspective, doesn't it? It does give us some perspective. When you see it against that kind of human reality, doesn't it? Is not that a great project of, 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 of liberation, of, of, of liberty from slavery? And that is what slavery is, 24-7. Uh, and did you see that old man? What were they doing to the old man in the, in the cartoon here? You saw that old man, that hand coming up there, and they pulled him up, and what did they do? They threw him. That's what they did. You know, that's what, you see, that was the kind of life. It is against that kind of backdrop that the Sabbath is in some ways reintroduced. It's second birth in the biblical narrative. It's second birth. So there is... There is a reference to labor here. It has some reference to labor, obviously, even as we will not disagree very much with, with Abraham Joshua Heschel that the Sabbath is a day for the sake of life. You know, we cannot, we will not disagree with him. Yeah, let's have a few comments here. Uh, yes, go ahead. Um, I'm going to one of my favorite sites, which is Judaism 101. And... Um, we're all familiar with the, the Exodus version of the, of the commandments. What, what Judaism 101 says is there's two aspects to, to the commandment. One is to remember and one is to observe. And when you, when you look at Deuteronomy 5.15, um, that's where, in that area it says to observe, and that's the part where it says, the Lord God brought you out of Egypt. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So, what the little commentary I got here, which I thought was pretty interesting, it says, what does the, what does the Exodus have to do with resting on the Sabbath day? It's all about freedom. Uh, in ancient times, leisure was confined to certain classes. Slaves did not get days off. Thus, by resting on Sabbath, we are reminded that we are free. But in a more general sense, Sabbath frees us from our weekday concerns, from our deadlines and schedules and commitments. During the week, we are slaves to our jobs, to our creditors, to our need to provide for ourselves. On Sabbath, we are free from these concerns, much as our ancestors were free from slavery in Egypt. 
Where are you reading from? Just this internet, Judaism 101. Okay. Whatever you want to know about, I picked up the Sabbath topic. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think Danielle had end up what's interesting is that often we kind of get stuck thinking about the Sabbath in terms of the exodus and slavery as a religion. But here you, you've really contrasted Sabbath and perfection. And Sabbath probably in a world that was so degraded that they reduced humans to machines, basically. And yet, in both instances, Sabbath speaks yeah. Well, the, you know, the, it carries beyond, you know, the, the, the Egyptian project, the, the Egyptian uh, sort of imperial inspiration. Uh, there are the Ro- Roman writers, uh, Roman imperial writers, and, the Ro- and Roman culture uh, could not make sense of the Sabbath because there, is no, there was no, no, no equivalent, no Sabbath equivalent in, in, in Roman uh, political or secular thought. So the Sabbath is in some ways uh, a, 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 an anomaly to the way uh, human cultures have structured themselves, uh, at least in, 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 in a number of, number of ways. Well, let's move on here. So, so here then, now, do you, do you buy this then, that there is a, an element of divine commitment here, when the Sabbath is reborn the second time, when there is deliverance from Egypt, if we say that there was a, you know, sort of Egypt, for the Israelites, Egypt was a 24-7 society, uh, and, and there was no rest, and do you buy that there is a, a kind of divine commitment here when God intervenes and, 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 and uh, wants to change the, the, the terms for, for this people? I think you could, could make that, and... Uh, I wish we could do, uh, we could have done Exodus uh, 16 in more detail. I just want to, to highlight this feature in Exodus 16 before the Ten Commandments are given. Uh, uh, be, uh, so you have verse 23 where you have the miracle of the manna. You, I will assume that most of us are familiar with that story. There is uh, something, food coming down to, on the ground to be collected every day. And then if you try to store it, there, it doesn't store, you know, there is no refrigeration in those days. Maybe we could have stored it now, we would have done better, who knows. <laughs> and then, and then there, is a, there is also a relativization of, of effort in the Sabbath, in that way it is structured. How is, how is effort relativized in the, with respect to labor through the week, during the week in Exodus 16? Go ahead. Well, I think that the, the Sabbath is so big, and I think in the reintroduction it's just another aspect of the Sabbath that's brought out, which happens to be labor, because they came out of this seven-day-a-week slavery. So the emphasis at this part of Sabbath, where you're going to hear about, is the labor aspect to make sure that they knew that you don't work. But I don't think that's the total picture, and I think every time we, we see another part of the Sabbath. It's just another aspect of it, of which may be emphasizing for the, the to make but, the point but, of the time. But that's not bad, if the Sabbath is sensitive to context. No, no. If it is sensitive to human context, if it, is, if it has in it 
the ability to fit needs, whatever they may be, creation story, exodus story, there is human, human reality. And does the Sabbath fit human reality? Does it, does it resonate with human reality? And that's what we're seeing here. Now, how is labor relativized? The value of labor is relativized in the, that story. Those who gathered much had no excess. And those who gathered little had no lack. You know, that is a socio-economically disastrous. <laughs> but the Sabbath is part of a, a project there that in some way speaks to, to that. You know, those who gathered little had no lack, those who gathered a lot had, didn't have too much. Where did you get that? Uh, no, I'm not going to t discuss that one. <laughs> I just wanted to assert it and, uh, and hurry on. <laughs> yes, Daniel. <laughs> Also, though, I wonder if the way this was shaped, because earlier in the chapter, the Israelites were complaining, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. That is hard to believe that people in slavery had pots of meat in their left and ate all they wanted. Yeah. That is, that is, of course, very intriguing. So, so what, how is, what was there, you know, that reality? Because we have both sides of it. We have the reality that in Egypt they groan and they ask for, you know, help. They, uh, like the song in, in this movie says, deliver us. That's what they're singing, you know. And, and that seems to be objective. You know, that they actually did have, you know, that it was a terrible time and that God sees it and wants to, to help them and to deliver them. And then as they walk, you know, in the Exodus experience, they, they seem to remember Egypt as, a, as not too bad. <laughs> you know, that it is the Exodus experience itself that seems to challenge them. So how do you do that? Now, how, do, how do you remember your own story? How do you remember your own reality? How do you tell your own reality? What was, what was reality? What is your reality? You know, how do you, uh, you know, how do we tell our own story? So, <clears throat> anyway, I, it's tempting for me to go into that, but I think I will desist. Uh, let's read these verses. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day, Exodus sixteen twenty-three. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. And all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. That's a different, different routine for the Sabbath. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. You know, so there is a grand sort of engineering project here to again make the Sabbath special. And what is it? What is one one feature of this Sabbath? Well, you don't have to go out on the Sabbath to gather. You will be provided for. There is a there is a way to be sustained without labor on the Sabbath, as it were. So, so that. That is certainly one, one of the substantive uh, ingredients. Well, here is this picture by Jean-François Millet uh, that you can see, many of you have seen it. Have you seen it? Where is it? It's at the Getty. Yeah, I have seen it before, but I didn't notice it uh, as much as I did this just the other day. We were we had some visitors here, and we took them to the Getty. 
And and I know I, I was uh, I read some background on this and Jean Francois Millet it was actually the painter who influenced Van Gogh to paint these kinds of scenes. And my favorite painter is Van Gogh. My favorite painting that I might want to show you at some point is a transcendent painting about human, everyday human life you, that you have to travel to Paris to see that painting. But here is, here is, what do you see in this painting? A man with a hoe is the title of the painting. What, what, what do you see here? And I have titled, entitled this uh, slide, Sabbath and Men and Women with Hoes. He's resting. So you see, a, you see a tired man? Rocks. See a, you, you see a tired, do we all? Isn't this just an excerpt? Like there's like a huge field out there that he's been working on? Well... There is, there is field here. I, I'm not sure that there is that much more to the painting, but uh, anyway, I had to download this from, from the web. What, what else do you see? So you see a tired man and you see a hoe. And what else? Short compared to how tall he is. He's got a bend and must be very uncomfortable. So, yeah, okay. And what else do you see? Well, you see quite an inhospitable earth, don't you? You know, there are thorns and thistles in this reality, and the hoe doesn't go very deep. You know, it is a quite, of a, quite a futile struggle in some ways, an unyielding earth, a man working very hard. Well, it is to such a man, it is to such a woman, that the Sabbath offers something that it may not offer us who do not feel similarly vexed, who are not similarly challenged by, you know, how to... Just, just subsistence, just sustenance. And the Sabbath seems in, in, in a peculiar way to be sensitive to the needs of men and women with hopes. Would you, would you agree with that? That that is biblical, that that is not some, some just some uh, uh, socialism from Norway. <laughs> Harvey. <laughs> In the initial instruction to Adam and Eve, they were to dress and keep the garden. Genesis 3, it's now by the sweat of their brow. Yes. Labor is redefined. Yes. Exactly. It's being taken to an extreme here. But it's interesting as we look at the end of time and the role of Sabbath again. It's not the hope. That's the labor. It's the insane workaholism that consumes and destroys people for which Sabbath becomes the hope. And so it's not just the day. So there, there, there are other aspects, and again, we, we will have to, you know, we will contend for the idea that the Sabbath is adaptable, or it speaks to, to human reality in, in that side, that side, that side, you know, whichever. So we have a comment here, too. I was just wondering, do you think this is the reason God sent the, his people to Egypt in the beginning, to realize their need? That there was a pedagogical project to, to, for sending them to Egypt because there was a, was a need uh, to, to, to sort of teach them, them a need and, and, and sort of make, uh, make, that, uh, make that, impress that on them. That's possible. Somebody has written an, an interesting essay about, 
about why the Israelites went to Egypt as a, as a sort of payback to Hagar for Hagar's expulsion. You know, Hagar We Quitted is the title of this essay. It's a very interesting essay. So there are, there are other, you know, plot constructs that you could do for, for why they went down to Egypt. One, yours, what you're suggesting it could be one of them. Well, <coughs> commitment versus commandment here. Let's read uh, Deuteronomy. And now we're going to change, change perspective a little bit because there are a couple of things that I have wanted to share here for some time and we always run out of time. Let's see if we can get to it today. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You, not, you shall not do any work. You or your son and your daughter for your male or female slave, for your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, for the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Thank you, Michael. So any comment here? Is there, are you, is there a divine commandment here? And this, this is the Ten Commandments. This is the second version in, in, in Deuteronomy 5. Is there a divine commandment here? Uh, let's have the comment and then my question. One comment that struck me when I was reading this earlier uh, today was the difference, at least in the translation of Deuteronomy 5, compared to what I remember. And when we read it, we read it the way we remember it, which is the sad is the Sabbath of the Lord our God, and yet in Deuteronomy it's the Sabbath to the Lord our God. Yeah. yeah. And I think that changes what yeah. the Sabbath is. Yeah. It's not something God of God, it's something we do to God or for God. Okay. All right. So that would, would be put the accent of commandment more, would it? I think this takes the accent away from commandment. It takes the accent away from commandment. To God, instead of God's, that's imposed upon okay. But, but the whole, the sort of narration that is here, what is it? You know, there is a specification of, of especially the ones that are the weaker ones, you know, your male or female slave, your ox or your donkey, or, or any of your livestock, you know, what is going on here? This is down to your to minutiae in, 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 in terms of uh, the household, and it's part of it, and the resident alien in your towns, and so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. You know, isn't that quite conspicuous in terms of sensitivity to the weaker ones, to the needier ones? The Sabbath is interested in that. And then the remembrance clause, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord brought you out. So it seems to me we could make the case that what is highlighted here in this, this Deuteronomic version of, of the Ten Commandments is divine commitment. You know, certainly the, the divine commitment, God's caring, God's commitment, seems, seems conspicuous here. That is not to say that there isn't commandment, but, but commitment looms larger than commandment. If we can take it that, uh, at least get put the accent like that, I think much could be gained. That would be, that would be helpful. Uh, let me share a couple of, of statements here from Patrick Miller's uh, chapter in the book... Uh, there is a book called Ten Commandments, Reciprocity of Faithfulness. 
is the title of the book. Uh, uh, William Brown is the editor of the book. It's a multi-author book. It's the best book I have seen on the Ten Commandments. I think it's excellent. And I think Patrick Miller's chapter is, is, is just amazing. He, is a, he teaches at, at Princeton. Uh, here is what he says on the relationship between narrative and command. These divine commands are rooted in the prior redemption and grace of God. There is a prior reality and a prior act, the Exodus, that is to say. And that reality act is determinative for the divine command. So it's just a structuring of, of reality after God has done something. And then he says, narrative carries the commandments. Now that's a good sentence. That is really amazing. Thank you for that. I completely resonate with that. I think he's right. I think that's good exegesis. And then he says about the rationality of the commandments. One of the primary features of Israelite law, one that appears first in the Ten Commandments, is the presence of motivation clauses that serve as a mode of divine persuasion on the one hand and the rationality of the commandments on the other. See that? So what is it? You know, the commandments, God is uh, treating the people, if we are saying that we are the recipients, we are the ones who are commanded. Well, how does God treat the ones who are commanded? He treats them as rational humans, and he says, you know, uh, uh, my way or the highway. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. He uses persuasion. He uses, he, he engages us you know, rationally uh, to win our, uh, our ascent and not just our behavior and obedience. And you can see that all these Sabbath texts, Genesis 2-2, Exodus 20-11, uh, uh, this makes the Sabbath a commandment that is replete with reasons. It has, it's rooted, you know, the, there is an explanation for it. Uh, you agree with me or, or am I losing? Losing, losing you here. You see that there is a therefore here. There is a therefore there. There is a, there is a narratival framework to it. The story of creation. The story of the Exodus. These are the reasons for the Sabbath. So there is, you know, uh, and, and which commandment is most, you know, which commandment is most, uh, uh, you know, where, where is there the largest part of, 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 of explanation with regard to the commandments? The fourth commandment. Uh, the other commandments are not explained or, or, or uh, sort of reasoned out quite to the same extent that it's also the longest of the commandments. Uh, so, uh, well, let me move on. So here is another one from Miller. Uh, <clears throat> the presence of divine persuasion. Now, how about this? I wish, I wish a Seventh-day Adventist theologian had been up to writing this, but let's have it from whoever says it, because here, here comes uh, something that, that only someone very sensitive to to key values in the biblical story could have done this one. The presence of divine persuasion indicates that the commandments cannot be reduced to blind obedience. They are not arbitrary or capricious, nor does God simply set them out to be obeyed. The one who commands also encourages obedience and seeks to draw forth a positive response from those before whom the commands are set. From the side of God, that is, 
on God's part, it is not assumed that the rightness of the command is self-evident or to be imposed from above. The consent of the commanded people is a true consent of the mind and heart. Now, that's amazing. In a cosmic conflict, within a cosmic conflict uh, uh, framework, a statement like that resonates even more. The kind of framework you and I might want to have for our theology makes this voice a louder voice, a more resonant voice, but he can say it even in, even in the absence of cosmic conflict perspectives. He knows that arbitrariness is not what God is doing. You know, that is not a, a major, a major thing in, in, in God's ways. Yes, Brad. It seems like the Sabbath commandment in that time would provide quite a contrast from the other gods, you know, who are always severe and demand child sacrifice and are very hard on their people. You know, you contrast that with the God of the Hebrews who gives a commandment for rest. You know, it would seem like God would appear rather attractive, perhaps, compared to all of the other, quotes gods. Yes, an ab- absence of ca- caprice, absent, absence of being a demanding, you know, an, an exacting uh, God, which of course would, would highlight that contrast would be, that would be, be a, a very, very valid point. So, uh, yes, comment here. I think the discussion of commitment versus commandment is an interesting one, and the comment that was just made was, was, it was uh, insightful. On the other hand, um, I just think back to the gentleman who, um, collected sticks on the Sabbath and he was executed for doing that. So commitment is voluntary. Commandment is not and it seems at least in that situation it was more coming from a commandment um, perspective and you know you do this if you don't um, if you violate it in the slightest you're going to face the, the penalties and that is a severe it seems like a severe God like the gentleman just talked about other cultures in the area. Um. Yeah, let's let's uh, comment on that. Uh, so, I don't think your comment uh, diminishes the notion of divine commitment because the the notion of divine commitment is is uh, is uh, sort of under underwritten by God intervening to deliver them from Egypt. But what about it? What about a sort of uh, uh, sort of the notion that there is a kind of a coercive aspect here on, on, on the man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. I, I have written a couple of pages about that in, in, my, in, my, in my book, and I was, I was faulted by Alden Thompson for not uh, doing enough on that when he critiqued my book uh, in, in a forum some time ago. Yes, go ahead. I'd just like to go back to Deuteronomy and the command. Uh, it appears that the golden rule is stated in the command in Deuteronomy, and that is treat others as you would want to be treated. In other words, treat your slaves, those that are lesser than you, as you would want to be treated, because you were brought out and rested, so should those that uh, you are accountable for. And it reminds me of, uh, of an incident I read recently of a company that was sold, and the proprietor of it took the profit and divided it among his workers because he noted that it was because of them that he prospered as he did and he felt in a sense obligated to them. Nice. Let, let's just, let me just uh, try one, one, uh, one uh, model, one possibility for the man who gathered stickers on the Sabbath and who was executed. Uh, 
I do think what God did there is out of character with God and out of character with the Sabbath. But there might be situations, and that may have been a situation where God did something that in some ways is out of character with God. Because the nation, you're starting out a new project, you're starting out trying to create a new reality, and there is a person who is trying to sabotage that, that attempt from the beginning, that there is a kind of, kind of brazenness to that person who goes out there and gathers sticks on the Sabbath. And, and there is no, like I said to Alden Thompson, there are some stonings in the Old Testament. There are no stonings in the New Testament. Well, the ones who stone in the New Testament are the good, pe are the righteous people who, 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 uh, the religious people, I should say. So, uh, I, I, I would rather not pursue that, other than than to say that there, you could see a scenario where the whole project, the whole Exodus project, in some ways is in jeopardy, and God does something that, in some ways, is out of character with God and with the Sabbath in in its ultimacy. But I will leave it at that because I'm going to be quite determined now to to make three perspectives on the Sabbath where I think it has been gravely misunderstood. I will do this one first from Origen. Uh, Origen is in the third century. He's the leading Christian apologist uh, in the pre-Constantinian era. Listen to what Origen is saying. Because it is evident from the scriptures that on the Lord's day, the Lord, God rained manna from heaven, and on the Sabbath he rained none down. The Jews may understand that even then the Lord's Day was preferred to the Jewish Sabbath. And even then it was shown that on their Sabbath no grace of God would descend from heaven for them, and that no heavenly bread, which is the word of God, would come down from them. That's origin. That's, and, and I revere or, origin because he has, he has an excellent cosmic conflict perspective. I have spoken highly of origin on some points. But here... He is really, really lost, lost on this one, isn't he? He allegorizes. He always does that. So that he, he allegorizes to excess. But is it absence of grace that, makes God, that creates the Sabbath? Isn't it grace itself? You know, so here he says, you know, listen to what he says. It speaks for itself. Grace gravely misunderstood. Now here is another instance where I think grace is gravely misunderstood. This is from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is the Catholic, Roman Catholic response to the Reformation. And this is from the Trent, Trent Catechism on the Fourth Commandment. And this is a little more complicated. The other one was easy, but this one isn't, isn't uh, impossible either. The point of difference between the Sabbath commandment and the other commandments is the evident. He says, the other commandments of the Decalogue are precepts of the natural law, obligatory at all times and unalterable, and hence, after the abrogation of the law of Moses, all the commandments contained in the two tablets are observed by Christians, not, however, because their observance is commanded by Moses, but because they accord with the law of nature and, uh, and are enforced by its dictate. We are not instructed by the natural law to worship God on the Sabbath rather than on any other day. Is that true? Any comments on that one? That is true. Natural law does not in, in, enforce the Sabbath. So what does enforce the Sabbath? What is it? It isn't natural law. Yes? That's how you define natural law. Because if in fact... Um, medicine, I think it's starting to find people that, you know, take a rest, and as uh, somebody mentioned about the happiness project, 
having the stones that those people do find, uh, take a break or whatever, that if the human body functions better with this cyclical break, is that not a natural law? Yeah, so you could make, you could say, but you could not, you could, you can get to a day of rest from an argument of natural law, but you cannot get to the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the seventh day is not going to be deducted from natural law. But what is it? What, this is the basic pillar, this is a plank of, of, of conviction in, in Roman Catholic moral theology, that natural law is the, is the name of the game, and, there, and, and Thomas Aquinas, others who have who have uh, hovered around the notion of natural law. Well, the Sabbath is not a creature of natural law. The Sabbath is a creature of God's story, you know, God's commitment. It is, you know, but it is not a, it's not like the Sabbath is, is kind of coming from nowhere. You know, there are high, there are points, you know, huge points in the biblical story of what God has done and how God has related to humanity that mandates the Sabbath. So I think this is also an example of grace gravely misunderstood. Here is an Adventist example. Why then should man keep the Sabbath? This is M. L. Andreasen, who was very much in, in the controversy in the Adventist church in the 50s. He's written a very nice book about the Sabbath. I read it years ago. I've read it many, uh, several times. And I rather liked it, and I was quite taken in by this argument in my younger years, and now I have walked away from it completely. Here is what he says. Why then should a man keep the Sabbath? To the Christian there is only one reason and no other, that, but that reason is enough. God has spoken. The Sabbath commandment rests definitively, definitely and solely on a thus says the Lord and has no ground in nature as such. It is for this reason that, the God, that God makes the Sabbath his sign and test what is he leading up to? He's leading up to the Sabbath primarily as commandment, primarily as test, and as test because of its arbitrariness. Listen to what this man says. This is in the most sort of scholarly book about the Sabbath written by Adventists uh, before I wrote my book, if I may say so. <laughs> but this book is even more scholarly, so forget it. In an arbitrary manner, God appointed, I'm quoting uh, a, a theologian in our, in our ranks now. In an arbitrary manner, God appointed that on the seventh day we should come to rest with his creation in a particular way. He filled this day with a content that is uncontaminated by anything related to the cyclical changes of nature or the movements of the heavenly bodies. That content is the idea of the absolute sovereignty of God as sovereignty unqualified even by any indirect cognizance of the natural movements of time and rhythms of life. As the Christian takes heed of the Sabbath and keeps it holy, he does so purely in answer to God's command and simply because God is his creator. Now, the time, our time is up and I need to let you do this on your own, which is fine. That serves you well. I will not... <coughs> I have taken out some of the statements there and I would like you to uh, you can do this and see if you can find some other way of saying what the essential you know, sort of the theological DNA of the Sabbath is other than this way of highlighting arbitrariness it would be quite detrimental to Adventist theology if the Sabbath is seen as an arbitrary element you know 
my claim in the book is that if you make that argument, you might win the battle for the Sabbath. It has been a quite an effective argument, actually, in Adventist evangelism. You might win the battle for the Sabbath, but you will lose the war over the character of God. That is the risk of that. So try your hand at this. Uh, the next session here will be, uh, I will, uh, we will not have a meeting next time, but we will, I will, uh, rain or shine, I'll be here, God willing, uh, on the 24th, because the text in Isaiah 56 is such a wonderful Christmas text, and it kind of aligns the Sabbath with the message of Christmas. So uh, uh, I hope I'll see some of you here at least on, 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 uh, on the 24th. Thank you very much.